This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, I am David Brenner. I'm the Vice Chancellor for Health Sciences, and it's my pleasure um, to uh, moderate today's um, health talk. The topic of today's talk is uh, maintaining a healthy weight. Um, this is particularly a good time for this topic because um, we, um, we've all undergone um, New Year's resolutions, many of which involve exercise, um, um, diet, and, and um, weight loss. And this year, particularly, it's been emphasized because um, on top of all this is the COVID-19 pandemic, where uh, many of us have um, done less exercise and more limited activities than we've had in the past. Um, today's panel you'll find represents a um, diverse um, areas of expertise and specialties that will all provide um, insight into um, healthy weight. We have four panelists today, Dr. Eduardo Grunwald, Dr. William Perry, Dr. Pam Tatil, and their fields um, range from weight management, psychology, cardiology, and cellular research. They're all world-renowned experts in their field. Our first speaker is Dr. Eduardo Grunwald. He is a um, internal medicine physician. He directs the weight management program at UC San Diego Health. The title of his talk is The Challenges of Weight Control, What If Your Diet Doesn't Work? Dr. Grunwald. Thank you, Dr. Brenner, for the invitation to talk at UCSD Health Talks um, and for the organizers as well. And thanks for everybody listening, uh, for your attention. And I'm very honored to to be here with my uh, three co-panelists here, who I all know all of them very well. I think you're in for a treat. They're all um, very uh, um, re well-respected experts uh, and very knowledgeable in their um, respective areas. So as Dr. Brenner mentioned, uh, I'm Eduardo Grunwald. I'm the medical director of our advanced weight management program here at UCSD. And I practice obesity medicine. And what the heck is obesity medicine? Well, obesity medicine is the fastest growing field of medicine um, today. Um, basically, it involves using evidence-based techniques to help people reduce their weight in order to improve a host of medical problems that are associated with having excess weight. So it's very different than the cultural desire to lose weight, right? That's a very different approach. Um, what I'm going to do today is, is two things because it's a very short period of time. I'm going to talk about what we've learned over the past 20 years in terms of human weight regulation and how we apply, ther apply therapies to that. And um, also kind of touch on what we're doing at UCSD sort of to move the, the field along. What I'm not going to do is give you the magic solution for weight loss because no one has that, right? There's no magic bullet just like there's no magic bullet for diabetes or heart disease or any other chronic disease. What we're getting better at is learning how to treat the problem. So I wanna first start out by, by talking about a very famous physician. And he wrote that obesity is harmful to the body and makes it sluggish, disturbs its functions, et cetera, et cetera. And that people with excess weight should travel to the seashore, walk in the sun and bathe in the sea, meaning exercise. And their nutrition should consist of foods which are not very nourishing, such as vegetables. What he meant by that was low in calories, right? 
And this was uh, by Dr. Moses Maimonides. And that was one millennium ago. So a thousand years ago, he said this, nothing has changed with that message, except that our obesity epidemic has continued to grow. In fact, if you look at this article from uh, nine years ago in the Union Tribune, it's forecasted that by the year 2030, 42% of Americans would have obesity. Guess what? We're already there. We're 2022 and we're already there. So this is not a problem that's going away. Now, losing weight is hard, but keeping it off is even harder. This is um, a study looking at various studies um, that showed what happens with long-term weight loss. And you can see that in the green bars, this is uh, different ranges of weight loss that people achieved during the interventions. Now, long-term, you can see what, the, what happens in the orange bars, right? So most of the weight that people lose tends to come back over time. And even some of them gain more weight than, than, uh, than they lost. So losing weight is hard, but keeping it off is even harder. That is the real challenge. So why is it so hard? We tend to think about how many calories you eat represented by this hamburger and how many calories you burn uh, on the other side of the balance. Right? So it shouldn't be that difficult. If you can sort of do a good job about changing that energy balance or calorie ba balance, we call it, then it's very simple. Well, if we look at what happens in the body to glucose, so glucose is blood sugar, you can see that's a very complex network of hormones and uh, organs that sort of regulate our blood sugar, right? So that's, this is what happens when you have a perturbation of this problem, then you develop diabetes, right? So anywhere in this little pathway, you can have a problem and you develop diabetes. If you look at the physiology of adipose mass or fat mass, so our weight regulation, how our body regulates weight, it's very similar. There's a very complex network of hormones and nerves that regulate um, weight through our organs and tissues. You can see that the brain has a very central role here, right? So there's many structures in the brain that are regulating our weight, believe it or not. Dr. Perry will talk a little bit more about this um, later on, but there are specific structures that do this on a subconscious level, right? So it's, this is not a conscious intent, but our body likes to regulate our weight. And this is what we call the, the set point physiology. So when you try to lose weight and you try to reduce your calorie intake or increase your calorie expenditure through exercise, what happens is that the brain senses this and then forces your body through, like I said, through subconscious mechanisms to um, cause weight, uh, to cause you to increase your calorie intake. Again, subconscious levels. On the other side, what happens when you lose weight is their energy expenditure, calorie expenditure, calorie burning actually goes down. Now, this is not the exercise part, right? But this is how your resting energy expenditure, how your tissues um, use up calories, that goes down. So you can now see how the, the balance is going to tip against you, right? So you're going to be forced to consume more calories and you're burning less calories. And this is in part why it's so difficult to maintain the weight. So what do we do? Um, well, over the last few years, we have many tools now that we can use. On the left-hand side here, you can see that there's many medications that we can use now uh, for helping this reduce the set point physiology. And that's what the medications really are doing. And on the right side, the best treatment we have is weight loss surgery, bariatric surgery. So there's a couple of procedures 
that will actually reset the set point. It's not working because you're reducing how much food you can come, you can intake. Although that's a little bit of part of it, but really it's working through the brain to reset the set point. Now, the problem is that uh, less than 1% of patients that actually could get help through these mechanisms really get that help. And part of the reason is that, believe it or not, there is no education in medical school and training on these areas. And here at UCSD, we've kind of been working, um, as Dr. Brenner mentioned, on a national initiative uh, to really um, develop competencies, obesity medicine competencies in medical training so that people are more prepared to deal with the obesity epidemic that we have. Another thing we're doing here at UCSD is we're developing uh, a new drug. Uh, so denatonium is, um, if you've ever used this uh, polish to stop nail biting or babies to stop uh, sucking on pacifiers, it's extremely bitter. So this is, it's, a, it's the most bitter compound known to man. Um, and it turns out that we have receptors on the cells in our intestines that are the same receptors that we have in our tongue. But if you can bypass the tongue so you don't have that bitter taste, these, this drug will stimulate the cells in your intestines. And what happens there is that it stimulates secretion of a bunch of hormones that are very beneficial for weight regulation. They work on multiple um, organs, but they also work in the brain, right? So they work in the brain to reduce that set point. This is what bariatric surgery or weight loss surgery does. And we're hoping that this is close to surgery in a pill as we've gotten so far. And we're actually the very first um, uh, place in the world that is studying this drug in patients that have had bariatric surgery and have regained weight. Now, what's the future of this? Well, if we look at um, other diseases like cardiovascular disease, where we have a team, a multidisciplinary team, we have surgeons, we have cardiologists and other doctors, we have rehab and physical therapy, pharmacists, research, all working together in one center. We have the same paradigm for cancer care. And I think the future is going to be very similar for obesity medicine, where we have surgeons, where we have obesity physicians, where we have dietitians exercise physiologists, researchers, all working together in one center. And we're already starting at UCSD sort of to develop that paradigm by collaborating amongst different divisions to, to start this process. So I think I'm going to stop there and uh, hand it off uh, to the next speaker. That was fantastic. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, th and thank you for both the educational and, and the clinical components. So our next speaker is um, Dr. Perry. Um, he is, William Perry is a clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist. Um, he is the head psychologist um, at the Bariatric and Metabolic Institution. And he's also administratively, he's co-director of the Division of Clinical Psychology. Um, he investigates the psychiatric um, um, manifestations of, um, of, of obesity and also of substance use disorders. And the title of his talk is Weight Management and the Brain. Dr. Perry. Thank you, Dr. Brenner. Thank you, Dr. Grunwald. And thank you for uh, taking the time to hear today about weight management in the brain. So maintaining a healthy weight is clearly important to our overall health. As we grow older, we tend to be less active. And you heard uh, opening remarks about during the, this time of COVID, we've been much more sedentary, many of us spending uh, increased time at our desk in front of our computer screen. If you eat the same amount of food as you had when you were younger, you're likely going to gain weight as you get older. Our metabolism slows with age. 
and our body composition changes. Our muscle mass decreases and our fat mass increases. And this is illustrated here. And my apologies to Mr. Matt Damon if he's in the audience, but I'm using him as an example. And you can see young Matt Damon to the left, very lean and a more corpulent uh, Matt Damon in the right photo there. And that happens to all of us in time. So to combat these realities uh, of weight gain, we tend to diet. And the one common element across all diets is that to some degree, we're starving ourselves. But as Dr. Grunwald uh, alluded to, our, our brain has evolved over thousands of years to avoid starvation. We've survived because we have found many ways to sustain ourselves during periods where there's a lack of food. So when you starve yourself, your brain goes into the survival mode and it engages in this homeostatic control, this balancing regulatory control that Dr. Google described. Um, going without food is clearly unsustainable. So what ends up happening is that when we relax that diet, we have been shown, it's been shown that we regain almost all of the weight we've lost and in many cases, increase weight beyond that. So let's talk about the brain. Uh, eating and hunger is controlled by several complex brain systems. This includes the hypothalamus, which is that site for the homeostatic control, our attentional system. Think about all of these systems and how it may apply to food. Uh, we're very visually uh, connected to stimulus cues, which I'll talk about in a moment. Importantly, our emotional system, the amygdala plays a very important role here. This is the site of emotional regulation. Uh, and then finally, the most advanced area of our brain, the prefrontal cortex and its connections to the reward system. This is where we exercise inhibitory control over these desires and where we're able to manage our thoughts uh, and our ability to uh, manage these impulses that come to play. Over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of research using advanced imaging techniques, for example, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And this has allowed us to study the brain system uh, and the cues that will activate various brain sites uh, so that we can engage uh, people when they're in a physiological state of hunger, uh, and then we can show them cues uh, and see how does the brain respond. These cues can be the smell of food, it can be the sight of food, or it can be done through modulating hormones that can recreate the state. And we'll see that these various areas are activated uh, when we have these cues. So these cues are really important. These are discriminative stimuli. Okay? When they're present, we find that they're hard to resist, particularly if you're in a state of deprivation or hunger. Uh, for those of you that watch late night television, uh, it is, should be no surprise that the commercials are peppered with uh, fast food commercials. And what they do with these commercials is they zoom in on the food. So you'll see the French fries sizzling or the beer uh, foaming and those, those uh, stimulus cues can trigger a release, a desire, uh, a neurochemical release included in, for example, in dopamine, which is a reward stimulus. Uh, and we start to engage in self-deception and denial. 
it'll help motivate us to go and eat food, even though we know that it's probably unnecessary at late, you know, 10 o'clock at night to have a bag of chips. So when those cues are available, our brain uh, starts to feel this uneasy sense between reward that it can have from the food and our cognitive control, which is that ability to suppress the action. And this creates a state that we refer to as cognitive dissonance. So let me take a moment and share with you what cognitive dissonance is. And I'm going to refer to the fable, the Aesop fable, the fox and the grapes. Some of you may remember this. Uh, this is where the fox desires a bunch of grapes hanging high from a tree overhead. They look delicious. He makes numerous attempts to grab those grapes. So there is a stimulus there that is drawing his attention and his desire. And there is this cognitive ability of saying, I really want those grapes. When he recognizes that he is unable to achieve that goal, he then reconciles by saying, well, they're probably sour, and he walks away. That is because that state of uneasiness between the desire and his cognitive beliefs is a powerful tool and we are driven to eliminate that tension state. So how do we address cognitive dissonance is really critical. We have to be mindful of that inconsistency and we're constantly forced to reaffirm our goals to not engage in the temptations. That we have. Now I made a reference to the amygdala and emotional states. And here are some emotional states that tend to stimulate eating when we feel anxious, when we're feeling stressed, for some individuals, when they're in a depressed state, uh, when you're feeling deprived, uh, anger and boredom. And boredom has uh, been increasingly discussed because uh, when we're working at home and finding more downtime and sort of staying uh, in one place, we tend to be bored. And when we're bored, we tend to engage in mindless eating. And when we have these other physiological and psychological states, we tend to want to escape that. Again, it's creating this uneasiness. And so we escape from self-awareness and from the things that are bothering us and turn to food as a coping mechanism. So let me share with you some tips to maintain a healthy weight. Uh, portion control. Well, that's obvious. But one of the rules is don't eat until you're full, but rather until you're no longer hungry. And there is a gap between when you're feeling satiated and when you're feeling full. And if you can uh, learn to stop when you're feeling satiated, you're in a better place. Don't deprive yourself, but rather limit yourself. Uh, one of the things that Dr. Grunwald, when I was working closely with him in the, uh, in the clinic, we find that patients uh, engage in that state of feeling deprived and angry, and they're constantly struggling with wanting to eat the foods that they so much enjoy. And you'll notice that some of the, the more commercial weight programs are trying to let patients know, people know rather, that you can uh, engage in some of those foods that you really like, but you must do it in, in moderation. It is important to uh, eat healthy foods, right? Uh, it's important to remove all the unhealthy foods from the house because those are temptations that will drive you towards them. Be mindful and enjoy the meal. Something that comes to mind is that we often make reference to the Mediterranean diet as a healthier diet. 
But the Mediterranean eating habits are also something to be mindful of. The meals in Southern Europe tend to be longer. People engage in social interaction and they tend to enjoy the meal. Uh, American restaurants tend to rush you out. We tend to eat quickly and we have a tendency to overeat. Eating small meals rather than overeating at one meal. Well, in talking with individuals, they often say, you know, I've been raised to clear my plate. One trick that can be used is to use a smaller plate. Um, that might be helpful. Increasing physical activity. Now, uh, what comes to mind, I can think of uh, numerous individuals that we work with, uh, Dr. Grunwald and I, who are uh, morbidly obese, but very committed to their diet. And they would come into the clinic and they would say, I've been strict about my diet and I haven't lost any. Now, Dr. Grunwald shared with what happens physiologically, but one of the things we would look at, I would ask if I could take a look at their smartphone and we would track their activity. And we'd see that actually they were very inactive. And so their body compensates and does not draw down on any of its weight and calorie reduction. So one of the things we strongly recommend is to increase your walking and your activity at least 150 minutes a week of vigorous walking and activity. There are certain things you can do. If you're driving to the mall, park at the stall that is furthest away uh, from the entrance. So it forces you to walk. Obviously, taking the stairs over escalators, elevators is always Monitor your alcohol intake. We know that alcohol has a lot of calories. So practice moderation and increase your water intake instead. And then importantly, eating high protein foods and decreasing your carbs has been shown to be helpful. One of the things we found is that people uh, often will eat in hiding. They'll take their food into another room. Uh, we strongly urge you not to eat in hiding or in bed or in front of the TV where you can engage in mindless eating. And don't eat out of a container or package where you have no ability to actually modulate and recognize how much So in closing, I'll just say that to have good health and good weight, we need to keep our brain healthy as well. Uh, so we want to strive for healthy eating, taking into consideration some of the tips I just shared with you. Obviously, regular exercise and activity. Keeping your brain active is critically important. You can do that through a number of ways, including positive social connections and something we had mentioned, but good sleep is also. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Perry. I, I don't know if it's your intention, but your talk made me incredibly hungry. <laughs> and now we'd like to move on um, um, to um, Dr. Taub. Dr. Taub is a cardiologist and the founding director of the Step Family Foundation Cardiac Rehabilitation and Wellness Center at the Jacobs Medical Center. She focuses on both um, general and preventive cardiology, as well as unique needs of um, women's cardiovascular health. And the title of her talk um, and one of her areas of research is Intermittent Fasting for Weight Loss and Improved Cardiovascular Health. Dr. Tao. Well, it's great to be here with my esteemed colleagues. I thank you, Dr. Brenner, for the opportunity to present today. I'm gonna be talking about intermittent fasting and how it can be beneficial for weight loss and cardiovascular health. One thing that you will not hear me talk about or use the term is dieting. So intermittent fasting is a, a lifestyle strategy and it is based on the principles of our circadian rhythm. 
our ancestors, the cavemen and hunter-gatherers, really conformed to uh, when the sun came out, they ate and they and they had physical activity. When the sun set, they went to sleep. So they really conformed to their circadian clock. Unfortunately, in today's society, we have access to food all the time. So we are not limiting our food intake to during daylight hours. We eat all the time. My patients will typically tell me that they eat a late dinner, they finish around 7 p.m., and then they'll have a couple of snacks after dinner. And so that's very characteristic of how most of us eat. We eat all day because we have that opportunity. And one thing that we've seen in modern society is we're not sleeping as well as our ancestors did. And so one of the things that we've learned is that this circadian clock is really important to our metabolism. And we should really be trying to conform our lifestyle patterns with our circadian clock. So what do I mean by that? So when the sun is out, that's when we should be eating. When it's dark, we really shouldn't be eating. So we should really try to end our meals when the sun sets. And when, when should we consume most of our calories? Well, the best time would be earlier in the day because that's where we have peak insulin sensitivity. That's where we metabolize our calories better. So this is something that we have gotten away from, but we need to get back to because fundamentally our body and our metabolism is driven by this circadian clock. And when we don't follow the circadian rhythm, what we see is we get a lot of diseases, including insulin resistance and diabetes, fatty liver, heart disease, and cancer. And in studies, both in animals and humans, what we've seen is when we conform more to the circadian lifestyle that is aligning our eating and activity patterns with the circadian clock, a lot of these parameters get better. And so intermittent fasting is a way of conforming to our circadian biology. And this very specific type of intermittent fasting that really focuses on our circadian clock is time-restricted eating, which is what I do a lot of work on. On the internet, you'll see tons of different fasting programs. Some of them get hyped by different celebrities, but I don't recommend most of these types of fasting regimens to my patients because many of them are not safe, especially if you're on a blood pressure medication or you have diabetes. The pattern that seems to be most safe is time-restricted eating. And what is time-restricted eating? It's basically eating within a limited period of time. So a typical time-restricted eating strategy is eating for 10 hours. So 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. is your eating window and you fast after that eating window closes. So from 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. the next day, you don't consume calories, but you can hydrate very well. So time-restricted eating is the best form of fasting. It's the safest form of fasting, and it's really aligning our dietary intake with the body's circadian rhythm. And within time-restricted eating, I do tell my patients to consume most of their calories earlier in the day. So breakfast or lunch should be their heavier meals and dinner should be their lightest meals. So we've done research in patients who have metabolic syndrome and metabolic syndrome is basically pre-diabetes. And one third of the US population has metabolic syndrome. 
And in this study, the only thing that we ask people to do is to engage in time-restricted eating, eat for 10 hours, fast for 14 hours. And after three months, we saw that patients lost 3% of their body weight. They had a decrease in their waist circumference, their blood pressure, their LDL or bad cholesterol improved, as well as their hemoglobin A1C. And these are all really important markers of cardiovascular disease. So people who have higher LDL cholesterol, who have higher blood pressure, higher hemoglobin A1C tend to have more heart attacks and strokes. So we saw in this small study that time-restricted eating, in addition to losing weight, can help with improving all these parameters because it's not just about losing weight. It's about losing weight and improving your body from a cardiometabolic standpoint. And what we see in our studies and in the studies of other investigators is that the benefits of time-restricted eating go way beyond weight loss. So typically when you lose 5% of your body weight, your body cholesterol goes down or the bad cholesterol three to 5%. But in our study, just losing 3% of of your body weight uh, resulted in an 11% reduction in the bad cholesterol. And we think this is because when you go from a fed state to a fasting state, you're fundamentally shifting what you're using as fuel for the body. You're going from utilizing glucose to ketones. And ketones have so many beneficial effects. Uh, many of you have heard about the ketogenic diet, which results in very profound weight loss, but that's not really a safe diet, especially because it can increase the bad cholesterol levels. Fasting is a very safe and effective way to get into a low-grade state of ketosis, and it improves inflammation. It also in increases resistance to stress. And ketosis, especially low-grade ketosis, has numerous beneficial effects on the body. And we've seen that in our clinical studies, including improvement in blood pressure and a decrease in body weight. So this is a review that I did for the American Journal of Preventive Cardiology, really summarizing kind of the dietary recommendations. And uh, Dr. Grunwald and Dr. Perry have already highlighted some of these recommendations, but basically you, there's multiple things that you want to do. And when you do all these strategies, that's when you get the most profound effect. And that includes paying attention to the quality of your food. A lot of patients tell me that they're vegan, but their vegan diet consists of uh, plant-based processed foods and other chocolate and other unhealthy things that may be technically vegan, but not healthy. So you really need to focus on getting a good amount of fiber and protein, as well as good carbohydrates and having that balance. And of course, the quantity is important. If you overconsume healthy foods, you're still going to go gain weight. And as I highlighted, the timing of when you eat is important. Ideally, you want to limit your food consumption to about uh, 10 hours a day. Uh, this is just a, a, a video that I created for a conference, just talking about all the different things that we as providers and patients need to be thinking about. What is it exactly that we're eating? How many calories are we uh, consuming? Uh, how are we consuming it? Is, are we fasting? What is our meal frequency? Are we having small frequent meals? or are we having large meals? And then of course, exercise. And so for everybody, these parameters are slightly different and that's when you need a physician to help you customize this. But if you try to optimize these parameters, this is going to lead to better cardiometabolic health. Thank you for your time.
Thank you very much. Um, so the final speaker is um, Dr. Alan Saltiel. He is um, our director of our um, Diabetes Research Center. He's the world expert on cell metabolism and intracellular signaling. And the title of his talk is Balancing, Balancing Energy Metabolism Molecular Insights. Dr. Saltiel. David, thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here and to be part of this program. Uh, I'm going to start today with a physics lesson for you, and that is uh, to introduce you to something that you probably learned in high school, and that's the first law of thermodynamics, which states that the total energy of an isolated system is constant, and energy can be transformed from one form to another, but can't be created or destroyed. Now, why am I telling you this, this stuff about physics? Well, if energy can't be created or destroyed, then energy balance is really decided by calories in and calories out. Remember, calories are a measure of energy, and then it follows that you can only gain weight if, you, if calories in are more than calories out. You can only lose weight if you expend more calories than you eat. So really, it's pretty simple, actually, when you, when you think about it. Now, we know it's really more complex than that. We know that, as we just heard from Dr. Perry, food intake or eating is a complex process. It's governed by many things that tell us when and how much and where and what to eat. And we also know that what we do with those calories after we take them in is also quite complicated, actually. How we decide whether or not to store calories or whether or not to burn those calories. So I'm going to talk today mostly about the energy expenditure side of this equation. And the first thing I'll tell you is something that mo most people are surprised to hear, and that is that physical activity or exercise and other forms of physical activity is actually a fairly small component of overall metabolism. By far, the biggest part of, of energy expenditure is in, the, is in the resting metabolic rate. So that's the first thing I think that people are surprised to hear. Another surprise is that energy intake and energy expenditure, actually eating and metabolism, are really intricately linked together. And this was really elucidated by studies um, from my colleagues at Rockefeller University, Rudy Leibel and the late Jules Hirsch in the 1990s. Leibel and Hirsch uh, took a number of patients, put them in a the hospital where they had complete control over their diets, and measured their metabolism. And what they saw was very illuminating. When they increased the number of calories in their diet, they saw a pretty big increase in their metabolism. This is their resting metabolism. And when they put them on a caloric restriction diet, there was a corresponding decrease in metabolism. And this has been re reproduced by many investigators. So it's very clear that our bodies are trying very hard to adhere to a set point to defend our body weight. Now, this became even more complicated later uh, in studies by Kevin Hall from the NIH. Kevin got hold of the contestants in the TV show, The Biggest Loser. And in this TV show, all these contestants were obese. They went on uh, programs of diet and exercise to lose weight. And Kevin measured metabolism, just like Hirsch and Leibel had done um, at the beginning and, and after they had lost all that weight. And you can see every one of these contestants, every one of these dots is a contestant. Every one of these contestants had a reduction in their metabolism to go along with their weight loss. So that was what was expected by the Hirsch and Leibel studies. What was surprising, though, is that he followed these patients out for several or these contestants out for several years. Invariably, all of the contestants gained the weight back 
And then he measured the metabolism again in these contestants after six years, expecting that metabolism would all go back up, would bounce back up as they gain weight. And the surprise was this only happened in a few of the contestants. The majority of them had a further decline in their metabolism. It was almost as if their bodies had a memory, a metabolic memory of their obesity. So it, it really looks like there are very strong forces that, that promote weight maintenance and keep us, um, prevent us from, from losing weight because of lots of reasons. And why, what's the main reason for this? The main reason is evolution. Our bodies haven't caught up with the idea that we have free access to food, as you, as you heard from, from Pam and other speakers today. And we think, our bodies think that there's a famine just around the corner. And so we're very efficient at storing energy in preparation for that famine. So how do we study this? Well, we can actually look at this in the mouse and to try to understand this link between diet and metabolism. The mouse is a very good model of metabolism for humans. And we know that if we put mice on a diet that's high in fat and high in calories, they predictably gain weight. And as they're gaining weight, we can measure all kinds of things in these mice, including energy expenditure. And what we see when we, when we measure energy expenditure is interesting. Just like in humans, when we start these mice on a high calorie, high fat diet, we see this compensatory increase in metabolism. But for some reason, it peaks out after just a few weeks and then starts to decline. And if you look out after a couple of months, you see it's actually below it was where we started. This is what I was talking about before, this memory of obesity. So the big question is, what's happening in this transition? What is really causing this decline in energy expenditure in obesity? And to tell you the truth, we don't really know yet. A lot of people are interested in this. We're studying this in my lab, and a lot of labs are interested in trying to understand this. Now, we think the key to understanding this decline in metabolism is to study the fat cell. The fat cell is a very interesting cell, and it's a cell that is able to store a lot of our energy. It's the first place that we go for energy storage and when we need energy. This is a picture of fat tissue from mice. You see all these little marshmallows here. These are the fat cells. And these are amazing cells. They can expand and contract as we need energy. You can see here, if we put these mice on a high-fat diet, by the way, this is exactly the same in fat tissue in humans. If we put them on a high-fat, high-calorie diet, these fat cells dramatically expand and store a lot of fat. And then if we take them off the diet, they'll shrink back down. Now, we're very interested in the study and the control of energy, energy metabolism in these cells. And we know that energy storage is regulated by the hormone insulin, which instructs the cell to take up and store energy. And energy expenditure is controlled by the hormone adrenaline. And the, the balance of energy is really under the regulation of these two hormones. Now, this is what happens in the kind of a fat cell that we're used to seeing called the white fat cell. But there's another kind of fat cell called the brown fat cell, which has a subtype called the beige fat cell. And in these fat cells, instead of generating energy for other cells to use, they generate heat. And we know that patients who have lower amounts of, brain, of brown or beige fat are more likely to gain weight. We don't know why, but we know that's the case. So we're very interested in studying at the molecular level what is really responsible for driving down energy expenditure. We know this involves resistance to hormones, resistance to both insulin and adrenaline. 
We, as I just told you, we know that there's less brown and beige fat in patients who gain weight. There are all kinds of loops involved in the control of these pathways that, that regulate metabolism uh, in, in these cells. And then finally, I'll just say that one thing we're very excited about is this idea that inflammation is a major way in which energy expenditure is reduced. We know obesity produces inflammation in adipose tissue, and we think there are pathways that are really involved in repressing metabolism. And in my lab, we're studying these, we're excited about this because we think that this is an opportunity to develop drugs which would block this effect and restore energy expenditure. So I think with that, I'll stop right there and hand the, hand the microphone back to David, uh, who's gonna moderate, moderate the question and answer session. Yeah. Thanks, David. Thank you, thank you. These are fantastic, thank you so much. Let me start with daily food restriction. There are a lot of questions about that. And um, Dr. Taub has pre-read some of them about, doesn't matter when you start during the day. A lot, a lot of us, you know, work really late, and we rather, you know, start eating later and finish eating later. Yet that doesn't fit in with our circadian rhythm. Is is that a problem? So, in the ideal world, you want to try to align your eating with daylight hours, but in our modern society, it's not often feasible. So, you are still going to get benefit if you if you find 10 days, I mean, sorry, 10 hours to eat and 14 hours to fast. We just finished a study with San Diego firefighters who have very erratic hours because they're getting up in the middle of the night to fight fires. And they showed us that they can actually do that. So they just picked 10 hours where they were eating and 14 hours of fasting. So even if it's not perfectly aligned with daylight hours, you're still going to get benefit. Very good. Um, there, there are a lot of questions about, um, ketogenic diet, maybe Dr. Tauber or, or um, Dr. Um, Grunwald can answer some of those about, for example, um, is it overall good for your health? You, you, you put a warning about having too many ketones and, and the risk of having too many ketones. Um, and, and there was also one question, um, does, it, does the ketones, you know, which have a, an odor, does it affect your breath? Does it give you bad breath? So I can start and then I'll hand it over to Ed. So the ketogenic diet is, uh, it does result in ketosis, but it doesn't matter how you get there. So the common example I, I, I tell people is chemotherapy results in weight loss, but does that mean chemotherapy is good? No. So ketosis in, in general, uh, especially a low grade state of ketosis is beneficial for the body, but it matters how you get there. And typically when you consume a ketogenic diet, you're eating very high fat foods and typically animal products. And all of uh, these foods can increase levels of inflammation, can also increase the bad cholesterol. So for my patients who are at risk for cardiovascular disease, we do not recommend the ketogenic diet. However, for very young people, sometimes it is used to get that initial weight loss. And Dr. Grunwald can comment on that. Yeah, I think that um, there's two points. One is that not all ketogenic diets are created equal. So um, there are healthy ways to do a ketogenic diet. So there are very healthy fats that you can eat. I think you need the guidance of someone who can help you with this. Um, there's ketogenic diets that have, you know, high, higher amounts of vegetables and healthy oils, olive oil, avocado. The second point though, is if it's something that you can't do long-term, I don't recommend doing it because it's only going to work while you're doing it. So ketogenic diets in general are difficult to do. And if you can only stand it for six months, it doesn't do you much good. 
So that's, that's I think, the major principle. And um, yeah, sometimes ketogenic diets have side effects, including, including bad breath. Um, there can be other side effects depending on what kind of ketogenic diet you do. There can be risk of kidney stones, bone loss, et cetera. But, but I think really it depends how you do the ketogenic diet as Dr. Tao mentioned. Thank you. I will say fasting, which results in low grade ketosis does not give you bad breath. Okay. Um, here's one for, um, for Dr. Soltiel. The, the question is how do you measure metabolism? And, and let me give you a corollary question that was followed up that anyone can handle. Um, BMI um, is a very old term. I used, you know, I taught in medical school and there's some people feel it's not useful that there are athletes who are muscle mass that'll end up with a high BMI and they're not obese. So, so let, let's, what do you, how do you measure metabolism? And then what do you do with BMI? Those are questions. It's not, it's not really easy for anyone, for a lay person to measure their metabolism. Um, we, we do it in the laboratories with very sophisticated instruments and things we call metabolic cages in the in case of mice. We do the same kind of thing. It's not for patients. We don't use Yeah, it. it's not really for patients. They're also too small for patients, David. Um, but uh, so I, th I think it's not really something that you can measure so easily. It can be measured in people, but it's, it's, uh, it's not something that's accessible to everybody to, to be able to measure. Um, Eduardo, I'll, I'll, I'll let you answer the BMI question. Yeah, you know, the BMI was really a population-based measurement. So it's very good for looking at populations. So all, with all kinds of parameters. Um, we do it as a screen, basic screening tool for patients, right? But I think any good medical professional is not going to stop at the BMI, right? We're going to look at everything else. We're going to look at your cardiometabolic risk, your cardiac risk. We're going to look at your metabolic risk. We're going to look at your function, cycle, you know, so we look at everything, which includes labs, physical exams, everything we do as doctors, right? So I don't think anybody on this panel would stop at a BMI and just leave it at that because it, it is problematic. It doesn't say anything about your body composition or your risk, your health risk. So, you know, it was designed as a population-based measurement um, and, and it's okay as a screening tool. Insurance companies like it, unfortunately, but <laughs> But, you know, we, we go beyond the BMI. I don't think anybody would stop at a BMI. Thank you. Uh, here's a question for Dr. Perry. Um, there's some questions about, um, can you elaborate on why you gain weight when taking certain um, psychiatric medications? Well, they're complicated depending on which medication we're referring to. But in general, they all increase appetite. Uh, and that is the, the biological basis for what's happening with some of the psychotropic medications. So people find themselves eating more uh, and being uh, unable to satiate. I don't know, Eduardo, if you wanted to, Dr. Grunewald, if you wanted to add to that. Yeah, we, we actually published a study here that right. showed that people who take um, several psychotropic medications actually lose less weight after weight loss surgery and also in, in behavior modification programs as well. So, so definitely can have an impact, you know, but you have to weigh, you have to weigh the, the benefits and the risks of taking some of these medications that are really great for some people. They really help them. That's right. Um, if there's other alternatives, then yeah, look for them. But if not, you have to weigh those, those benefits and those risks. There are a whole series of questions. Um, I'm not sure why <laughs> on the relationship between uh, hypothyroidism, weight loss, and um, um, intermittent fasting. <laughs> I, I, so 
I don't know who can answer that. <laughs> Hopefully one of you can, because I can't. I'll, I'll take a stab okay. at some of that interrelationship and have my other colleagues join in. But hypothyroidism is a very important parameter. And whenever we're looking at why someone is gaining weight, we always need to check the thyroid levels and optimize that. Uh, and, and before I have anyone engage in any type of strategy, that's kind of the first and fundamental thing to check. Um, of course, if your thyroid hormones are optimized, you're more likely to respond to the different interventions that you engage in. Yeah, I, I, I'll agree with that to a certain extent, but I also would give the advice is do not, don't focus on the thyroid when you're trying to manage your weight. If you have hypothyroidism, put, you know, hanging your hat on, on that issue it is not going to do you much good. It, it really, it, it's, the thyroid is involved in metabolism. It is involved in regulation of our weight, but you know, I have many patients come in and say, it's my thyroid. Well, it doesn't really do much good to focus on that because, you know, you can easily control the thyroid, but it usually doesn't result in a lot of weight loss. So, right. so you do need to screen for it. Like Dr. Taub said, but I wouldn't, you know, worry too much about it when you're trying to manage your weight. Um, there were a couple of questions about um, HMR, which is a combination of a healthy diet and some sort of, um, you know, life, lifestyle changes. Um, maybe Pam and um, Bill can comment on, those, on that. Actually, let me, let me take that one because we use HMR in our program. Um, so HMR stands okay. for... Um, <laughs> HMR stands for Health Management and Resources. It's just a company. Oh, so meal replacements. I, I thought it was like a. That was good. To know. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's it's a they're meal replacements, right? And it's just one strategy of of, of weight loss. It, um, it's actually my least favorite strategy um, <laughs> because because um, it doesn't it doesn't address the physiology. It doesn't address the 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 biology of weight regulation. But it's, it's effective for some people in certain circumstances. It's very good. As long as you have the understanding that you're going to focus long-term on transitioning to a healthy calorie-reduced weight maintenance program, right? So you can't just do a structured meal plan like that and then stop. The weight's going to come back, right? So for some people, it is very effective. And if it's done the right way, um, and I'll let Pam um, answer this, but sometimes it helps with with uh, intermittent fasting because you can control your calorie intake and diet a little bit easier when it's structured. Agreed. It's it's poor, it's intrinsic portion control. But I, I think if I can uh, also follow up, I, I think one of the things that Dr. Grunwald mentioned earlier really uh, deserves to be underscored. Whatever there's there's a multiple number, there's multiple ways of reducing your weight, um, but they tend to be temporary um, in, in their success. And in selecting um, a weight loss program, whatever it may be with your physician's uh, support, you've got to be thinking about the long-term sustainability of that. Uh, it requires some degree of lifestyle change, be it intermittent fasting or reduction in calories or increase in activity and that really is often overlooked. So people, I think um, the, the studies from a few years ago, and I don't remember the, I couldn't cite the, the actual reference offhand, but they looked at all of these diets. And, uh, and I think uh, Dr. Grunwald can give you the more specifics, but overall over two years, uh, the amount of weight lost was minimal. 
And uh, most of these diets work in the same way. They restrict calories, people lose some weight, and then they regain it uh, because they're not addressing the long-term sustainability of a lifestyle change. I was actually aiming for you to answer sort of, is there, in addition to the actual diet, is there a, you know, a cognitive training component, you know, to, 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 that's, a, that's part of, of a healthy diet to, to teach you to behave in a way that's rational or, you know, or, or other sorts of, you know, positive reinforcement types of um, interventions. Yes. And, it, you know, you, you might notice that in these commercial diet plans that are now promoted on television, <laughs> they all include, uh, they, it's become very popular to say that they use cognitive behavioral therapy and uh, these cognitive restructuring techniques. Uh, they're addressing things that I kind of hinted towards, like what are the cues that uh, will elicit you to engage in unhealthy eating? What is your emotional state? What are some of the things that are happening around you? I think those are valuable because then you can uh, improve in your self-regulation uh, in those activities. Thank you. Um, th there are several questions about how things change as you get older, how your metabolism changes, how your diet should change. Is it harder or easier to control your weight as you get older? Uh, I'll throw it open to whoever feels like answering it. Alan, you wanna take that one? Why is Alan the oldest member of the group here? Is that yeah, <laughs> thanks Edward, because I'm getting older faster than anybody else. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll just, I'll, I'll say a little something on the energy expenditure side. It's very clear that energy expenditure reduced when you get older. The degree and the rate at which it reduced is controversial. I don't think we really understand everything about that yet. It's variable. Um, but the ability to generate heat actually very clearly goes down when you get older. And that's why your, your mother's always turning the thermostat up. My mother is, anyway. I don't know, and she's not 94, but she's always turning it up. So I think that, that we're losing the brown fat that generates heat as we get older. And I think that's a really important part of it. And that obviously uh, makes us more likely to gain weight. I think it's complicated. And, and believe it or not, we actually don't have a lot of answers. Um, uh, this is very hard to study in humans. Um you know, a study just came out recently showing that our metabolic rate really doesn't go down that much until you're about 60, yeah. um, which is hard for me to believe. But um, uh, and everybody's different. There's a high degree of variability. Right? So everybody's different. There's things we don't really understand. There's some very good animal studies and some very, very crude human studies that our hypothalamus tends to get scarred and degenerates over time as we get older. And that's the area of the brain that regulates weight. So, you know, there's a lot of theories, there's a lot of interesting um, um, observations, but, and everybody's different, but we really don't have the, the, a great answer. There are a couple of really fun questions. Maybe we can do really short answers because I want to get through as many as possible. So um, <laughs> one is, when do you start the clock ticking for your... Um, intermittent fasting. If you, if you have coffee with cream in it, does it start with that? If you have a yogurt for breakfast, but they, they don't need anything else in a couple hours, does it start with the yogurt? <laughs> People are very, very, you know, conscientious about this, I think. <laughs> anything that has calories in it is going to break that cycle of ketosis. So you can have um, green tea without sugar or cream. You can have black, black coffee. We've, we've seen doesn't really break it as much. Yeah. Just anything. Uh, so I, so just avoid anything that has calories. Fair enough. 
Uh, another fun one is where does this is I'm particularly interested in this one. Where does alcohol fit in this? Um, <laughs> um, the, the, you that's know, a Dr. Perry. That's a Dr. Perry question. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'll take anyone, anyone. But you know, the, the, it's a serious question, though. I mean, does it just count for the calories of the alcohol, or is there other things that alcohol does that affects diet and and, and your metabolism? Is this really for me? I don't, I don't know that I have an answer for all of it. I think uh, I would say that obviously there's calories associated with alcohol and like all things in moderation is probably acceptable. Uh, I would recommend good wine over cheap wine myself, but that's a preferable <laughs> choice, my uh, preference. Um, but, uh, you know, there's some, you know, there, there's still a science out there that's addressing the beneficial effects, for example, of red wine. Um, and so I think one has to consider all of these things. Yeah. I was always trained that there was a, um, a Jake Kerr for alcohol, that teetotalers didn't do as well as people who are moderate drinkers, who didn't, didn't do as well as people who are excessive drinkers. And that there's a sweet spot. And the sweet spot is that um, you are drinking less than your patients, I think is the sweet spot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is really fun. I really enjoyed this tremendously. We obviously could have gone longer. We will stop here. I want to, it was great questions from the, um, from, from the audience. And um, it was really, really fun. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.